Hi, I'm Gary from Stonyfield, the organic yogurt company. We started making yogurt as a way to fund an organic farming school. And 28 years later, our mission is still all about healthy food, healthy people, and a healthy planet. Today, we support 200,000 acres of organic family farms. And we give 10% of our profits to efforts that protect and restore the earth. So we're proud to support thoughtful programming like Living on Earth. And hope you will too. Donate at LOE.org. From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. There's gold south of the border, black gold, deep at sea, off the coast of Brazil. If you're Chevron, if you're Exxon, if you're Royal Dutch Shell, if you're BP, if you're any multinational oil company, you want to be deep water Rio and Sao Paulo. But woe to Chevron oil. It's been blacklisted by Brazil after one of its deep wells sprang a leak. Also, fish farming might look like a good answer to declining stocks of seafood in the wild, though there are problems with aquaculture, too. We've pretty much outfished all of the main commercial fishes in the ocean. So what we're doing now is we're harvesting their food. We're taking their feed and grinding it up just so we can grow fish in aquaculture settings so it's not the most sustainable practice. But cafeteria leftovers could help feed fish in the future. We'll have those stories and a lot more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Negotiators from more than 190 nations are meeting in Durban, South Africa at COP17, the annual conference of parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. That's the world body that's supposed to deal with global warming and its effects. UN Climate Chief Christiana Figueres struck an upbeat note at the start of this year's meeting. It gives me great pleasure to address you on African soil and to welcome you to COP17 and CMP7. In the Sulu language, I greet you, Sanbonani Nonke. But despite 17 years of international negotiations, the risks from climate change are higher than ever. We meet here at a time when greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere have never been higher when the number of livelihoods that have been dissolved by climate change impacts have never been greater, and when the need for action has never been more compelling or more achievable. And yet, expectations that the UN meeting will actually accomplish much to combat climate change are lower than they've ever been. Few anticipate that negotiators will be able to come up with a new climate treaty to replace or extend the Kyoto Protocol. That's the only legally binding international treaty governing the emissions of climate-changing gases. But it lapses at the end of next year, and it includes neither China nor the United States, even though they're the two biggest producers of greenhouse gases on the planet. China isn't included because, as a developing nation, it's not required to sign on. And the U.S. never signed and won't until China does. Here's Jonathan Pershing, U.S. Special Envoy for Climate Change. We are working for an agreement which we can endorse, which we can participate in, and primarily which works on the environmental problem, which means that all countries need to be in. In other words, don't expect much out of Durban. Still, the negotiations will continue till December 10th. There have been surprises at UN climate summits in the past. And Jacob Zuma, South African president and host of the talks, remains optimistic. Change. And solutions are always possible. In these talks, states, parties will need to look beyond their national interests to find a global solution for the common good and benefit of all humanity. One European delegate called the UN conference a traveling circus, but the problem couldn't be more serious. There are 10,000 people attending the Durban summit, national climate negotiators, members of non-governmental organizations, and reporters, among them Rochelle Seaton-Rogers. She's with the South African Broadcasting Corporation. 
these talks are not going as well as is hoped. That's just what we've heard from the NGOs. I have spoken to the Minister of Environment, Edna Molewa, and she's told me that the talks are still on track. So we're getting a bit of mixed signal about what's happening. But from looking at some of the faces in the plenary and from what some of the things that have been said, there does seem to be that there is a bit of uncertainty about the Green Climate Fund. Um, as you know, this was agreed upon in Cancun, Mexico, and the countries are now trying to operationalize it here in Durban. Now, the Green Climate Fund would be, what, $100 billion a year from uh, rich countries across the world to less developed countries. Um, but with the worldwide economy in the dumps, where do they hope to even think about getting $100 billion a year? Yes, I have put that question to our head of delegation and our environmental minister, and she was saying that countries can't use the financial crisis as an excuse not to put money into the Green Climate Fund. Cash for those funds needs to be garnered from 2020 onwards, and she's saying that the financial crisis is not a permanent crisis that's going to be with us, and so countries can't use that to now make excuses for not um, working on the fund at this conference. So at the moment we're just looking at the kind of framework that would surround this Green Climate Fund and not where the funds are actually going to come from. Well, I was reading something that the United Nations chief climate scientist told the uh, conference of parties earlier this week, and he said that if things continue as they are, Africa will lose half of its agriculture due to drought within a couple of decades. Half. Yes. That's why, you know, with the conference being here in South Africa, it's really a chance to highlight the plight of Africa. And Africa, along with the small island states, are going to be the worst affected by climate change because the temperature over Africa is actually going to be rising higher than the rest of the world. So although the conference is working to keep the global temperature rise to under 2 degrees Celsius, even if they keep it to that, it's going to rise to about 3 to 3.5 degrees Celsius over Africa. And that's going to have massive implications for our rainfall. In some parts, it's actually going to cause flooding. Um, at Durban on Sunday night, we already saw some floods and a number of people died in some of the rural areas in Durban. And some people saw that as a sign, a clear sign to show delegates and negotiators here that climate change is real and it's happening right now. South Africa is by far the economic leader on the continent. But it's also the, the largest emitter of greenhouse gases and, and, and very dependent upon coal. Is there a sense there that uh, South Africa has to clean up its act? Yes, there's a, a big sense in that. Um, South Africa is the biggest emitter on the continent. And we are at the moment busy constructing two of the world's largest coal-fired power stations, the one called Madupi, which is close to being completed, and another one called Kusile, which is still in the process of being constructed. What the South African government is generally saying is that South Africa has the right to develop so that we can give electricity to all the people who don't have it still. The majority of people who are actually living in a lot of poverty, they don't have access to water and sanitation and electricity. And they're saying the best way for South Africa to do this is because of our coal reserves as coal-fired power stations. The World Bank, as I understand it, gave almost a three and three-quarter billion dollars to the utility in terms of a loan to build this coal-fired power plant. Yes, that was quite a controversial decision and um, a lot of the NGOs were lobbying for the, the World Bank not to give the money to ESCOM, which is our power utility here. The World Bank still did give um, the funds, but there was a condition to that. The World Bank only gave the money to ESCOM if they also invested in renewable energies. And so ESCOM is saying that they are going to be doing some kind of move to renewable energy and they are going to be building a solar power plant as well as a wind power plant, which they say is enough to power a large city like Cape Town, which is the second smallest city in South Africa. So it is a move in the right direction, but according to the NGOs like Greenpeace, South Africa could be doing a lot more when it comes to renewable energies, and we really don't need to be building two new cold power plants. You know, Rochelle, uh, back in 2009, there was the UN meeting on climate in Copenhagen. That was a disaster. Then we had Cancun last year basically kicking the can down the road. No firm legally binding treaties coming out of that. Is there a sense in Durban that time is running out? In Durban, you know, the EU, the European Union has expressed that 
you know, the carbon cutting targets are not sufficient. Science is saying that the targets that were put on the table in Copenhagen and that are in the Cancun agreements would put the world on track for about a four degrees uh, centigrade rise, which leads us into a situation where we're dealing with possibly uh, catastrophic climate change. And um, uh, some of the countries are, are standing in the way when it comes to making any kind of progress here in Durban. The two biggest emitters in the world, the USA and China, are at a bit of a standoff with each other. And if one doesn't move, the other isn't going to move. So it looks like we are um, on track for a four degree temperature rise if um, they don't come up with better pledges. So, Rochelle, thank you so very, very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Rochelle Seaton-Rogers reports on the environment for the South African Broadcast Corporation. She joined us from the UN Climate Conference in Durban. Well, shortly before the climate summit got underway came news that Dr. Paul Epstein had died. He was 67. Dr. Epstein was among the first to warn of a link between infectious disease and extreme weather events. Living on Earth, Steve Kerwood has our remembrance. I first interviewed Dr. Epstein almost 20 years ago in a cramped office at the Cambridge City Hospital Annex. He warned me about what he said were the clear and present public health dangers that we can expect from climate disruption. We had come to interview him because Dr. Epstein was among the first to educate the public and the medical community about the links between the spread of infectious diseases like Lyme's and West Nile and the warmer winters and extreme weather events of climate change. Here he is in the year 2003. West Nile's largest outbreaks in the 90s in Romania, in Russia, in Israel, and in New York in 1999 were all associated with severe droughts. Heat in the atmosphere and the oceans is changing the water cycle, affecting the intensity, duration, and geographic patterns of precipitation. These are fundamental to where mosquitoes breed. So in addition to the warming, it's these extremes and wide oscillations from droughts punctuated by heavy rains that are key to destabilizing the biological systems. Over the years, Paul Epstein moved out of his tiny office into larger quarters as co-founder of Harvard Medical School's pioneering Center for Global Health and the Environment. And today, more than 60 medical schools offer courses similar to the popular ones that Dr. Epstein helped start at Harvard. His teaching partner of more than 15 years, Professor James McCarthy, says Paul Epstein captivated and inspired students, and many found new career paths under his guidance. Dr. Epstein connected the dots between climate and disease by showing how chaos in the weather helps fast-growing pests, such as rats and mosquitoes, as well as microbes and weeds. With climate change, he said, allergy seasons grow longer and poison ivy grows faster. Dr. Epstein was also able to get some of the world's biggest insurance companies to begin considering climate risks. But at heart, he was still a primary care physician. The son of a New York City doctor Young Dr. Epstein headed for the clinics in the poor neighborhoods of Boston shortly after he finished his training. He and his wife, Andy, a public health nurse, also volunteered in East Africa, taking their two young children, Ben and Jesse, on their missions in the 1970s to help heal the poor. Until October, family and friends believe modern technology would save Paul Epstein from lymphoma, much the way so many of us think that technology will somehow solve the climate crisis. Still, to the very end, Dr. Epstein had time to care. At a memorial gathering for her father, his daughter Jessie told me she had come home to marry during his final weeks, and one day her new husband injured his knee. Upon hearing this, Jessie reports her father slowly arose from his chair without a word, went to the freezer for a package of frozen berries, wrapped the frozen pack on his new son-in-law's leg with an ace bandage, and shuffled back to his chair. It was a graceful reminder that no matter how difficult our own situation may be, we can still help a relative, a friend, or an overheating planet. We will miss you, Dr. Paul Epstein. Farewell. Steve Kerwood is Living on Earth's executive producer. Just ahead, new fields of coal and oil fuel fears in Brazil and Mozambique. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. While much of the world suffers a global economic slowdown, 
China and India are booming, and fueling those red-hot economies is coal. It provides two-thirds of their energy. And while both China and India are coal-rich, they're increasingly coal-hungry. To satisfy the demand, multinational mining companies are going far afield. But as Rowan Moore-Garrity reports from Mozambique, the coal rush there may come at a high cost. On the banks of the Zambezi River, Manuel Mayenda cuts firewood near his home in Benga Village. It's hot, well over 100 degrees. Mayenda wears a worn nylon cowboy hat to escape the sun. I'm cutting this wood to help me get by. Mayenda drags the wood to his bicycle, propped against a tree in a speck of shade. He'll bring the wood home to cook or use it to produce charcoal, which he sells on the side of the road to Tet, the provincial capital. Mayanda points in the distance to large yellow dump trucks clearing rock. You see? People lived right there, all the way up to Nganje, over there. Some left at the end of last year. Others went this year. The land now belongs to Rio Tinto, a British-Australian mining company that's one of the world's largest. Rio Tinto will soon begin exporting coal from Mozambique, primarily to buyers in China and India. Tet is one of the driest regions in the country and one of its least populated. But the land in the Zambezi River Valley is prime real estate, largely because of access to water and coal. Well, they say it's the world's largest undeveloped coal basin. And it's got huge resources of coking and metallurgical coal. That's Herat Theron, a geologist with the Incandesi Coal Company. Incandesi is still in the prospecting phase, but mine construction in the region has already displaced some 2,000 families. Before the resettlements of other villages nearby, Rio Tinto representatives came to Benga to speak with the locals. They promised help, like building a water source right in the village. Manuel Mayenda says his community appreciated the gesture. We were having problems with crocodiles attacking people and so forth. And so they built it, and nobody goes to the river now or has problems with crocodiles. Now women wash their clothes in a shaded pavilion in the middle of the village, thanks to the same pipe that brings water to the mine. All around Benga, more dramatic changes are taking place. Construction is everywhere. Multiple hotels are going up. Four-by-fours are cruising through the bush. I asked Theron who's driving the boom. I think there's just a huge demand for coal now with China and India. Everybody that makes steel will be interested in it. Today, coal accounts for 20% of greenhouse gas emissions and more than a quarter of the world's energy use. Still, the planet as a whole will burn 50% more coal in 2030 than it does this year. Already, the price of coking coal has increased sixfold in a decade. Prices for thermal coal are also at record highs. But the flip side of increased demand is reduced supply. Many experts believe that peak coal, when the world's maximum coal production rate is reached, will come as early as 2030 or 2025. In China's case, it could be 2015 or even sooner, while China currently mines more coal than the next three largest producers combined. Theron says that this economic pressure has changed the bottom line for mining companies. And with the high prices that the guys are willing to pay now, you, you can exploit these resources which were uneconomical in the past. For instance, Tet, which was didn't have any railways to the ports or infrastructure. The Brazilian mining giant Vale has already begun exports by rehabilitating a colonial railway to the coast. More will have to follow, and ports too. The existing line can only transport a fraction of the coal Vale hopes to produce. Meanwhile, 35 more companies are looking for coal throughout the province. Incandesi, for one, has drilled more than 10 miles of boreholes. Today, they've decided to drill one more. With the backhoe out of commission, Local workers are preparing the site by hand. <laughs> These jobs are one reason that the district administrator, Manuel Guimaraes, has high hopes for his district, Moatiz. Already Moatiz is advancing, and it's advancing in big steps. Locally, Guimaraes says that the coal projects have created 1,500 jobs for Moatiz residents and brought medical clinics and schools in addition to Benga's water source. Still, more than half the land in Tet province has been licensed for prospecting. Even if only a small number of projects become working mines, the implications for land use and resettlement are extensive. 
Rio Tinto is lobbying to dredge the Zambezi River and use it to transport coal. Guimarães and many people here treat the mining projects with an air of resignation. We all need to understand that mining in Moatiz is irreversible. We have to learn to deal with the process because we have no way to stop it. The world today needs the resources that Moatiz has. Local officials may have little choice but to take Guimarães's view. In 2012, coal from Moatiz will boost Mozambique's exports by 13%. With more than half the state budget dependent on foreign aid, mining has become a top priority. Lucia Francisco has worked on community development projects in Tet for more than a decade. She worries that locals have lost out in the government's eagerness for investors. There is so little community consultation because all the licenses and all the projects are being designed in Maputo. The governor has no say. What he does is to go to the community, say, please, this is not my will, but this part of land has been already located to someone. We have to leave. All the same, says Francisco, the local people were understanding when they heard about resettlement. Some were even excited. From villages near the river, they were moved to Keteme, 20 miles away. The mining companies Vale and Rio Tinto built them concrete houses known here as casas melhoradas, or improved homes. But the houses were poorly built, and there were cracks throughout the walls. The area is isolated and arid. And they are really suffering because there are no rivers or streams that they can get water. No shops. Kateme is at the end of a bumpy dirt track on a dusty plateau. In the center of the settlement, vendors chat and sift corn at a small market. Farming was an important source of income for the communities that were resettled in Kateme. Yet none of this corn was grown here. Even the district administrator, Manuel Guimarães, recognizes that the lack of water has made agriculture hard. Right now, frankly, there are problems with pockets of hunger in the population there. There may soon be other reasons to worry. Studies in the U.S. have linked open-cast coal mining to higher rates of cancer, pulmonary diseases, and birth defects from air and water pollution. In Moatiz, many people and livestock drink straight from the rivers. According to Lucio Francisco, environmental effects of the mines have not gotten sufficient review. And nobody speaks about the pollution. Everybody says the mining is good because it's bringing money to the nation. But they don't even ask whether this open mining is going to damage their life. Rio Tinto recently published a report that estimates coal exports will earn Mozambique $15 billion over the next 25 years. But the government has not yet disclosed how mining revenue will be spent. The arrival of peak coal globally is expected to push coal prices even higher. Mining companies here will surely gain as a result. The locals are hoping they will, too. For Living on Earth, I'm Rowan Morgarity in Tet, Mozambique. Brazil has oil fields of dreams. In recent years, geologists have discovered mega oil fields off the coast, deep under the South Atlantic, miles below rock, salt, and sand. Chevron, America's second largest oil company, began tapping into Brazil's oil wealth about two years ago. But now a spill at the company's first well has cast doubts on Chevron's ability to safely drill so deep under the sea. Joining me is Ken Raposa. He was a reporter for the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones in Brazil. Now he's back stateside and writes about business in Brazil for Forbes Online. Hi, Ken. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks, Bruce. So uh, what went wrong with this well? Well, it's complicated. It becomes a technological issue for Chevron. When you're drilling into rock, you have to use heavy mud that contains the oil as it's coming out of the, the ground, okay? They didn't use it properly, and 
all hell broke loose. At first, they said that it was a, a crack in the ocean floor. They blamed nature, basically. And then within about 48 hours, they came clean and said, you know, it was, it was our fault, and they take full responsibility for it. Um, 2,400 barrels of oil leaked out of the frayed field, which is uh, mostly owned by Chevron. 2,400 barrels of oil, kind of a drop in the ocean compared to BP's Deepwater Horizon disaster in the Gulf. Sure, you can't compare. You can't compare the two, yeah. And Chevron's very happy that you can't compare the two. But it was Transocean, the same company that operated the BP rig, as, as operated the Chevron's rig. Absolutely, and both of them are under investigation right now. From the National Petroleum Agency of Brazil, the Federal Police, and the Brazilian Navy are all checking it out. So Chevron right now isn't drilling anywhere in Brazil, and they face $28 million in fines, more fines possibly on the way. This field that they were drilling in is really a kind of a precursor to the big show. Brazil has a lot of oil off the coast. Yeah, a lot of oil. This field was called the Freight Field. It has about 300 million barrels of oil. It produces now about 79,000 barrels of oil, I believe, a day. There's been a lot of major oil discoveries so far off the coast of Sao Paulo and Rio states, and they're, they're pretty much situated in two big basins, the Campos Basin and the Santos Basin, and they're, they're both about 200 miles off the coast of both states, and they're in deep water. Some of them are in under lots of bedrock and salt, and they produce, both of those two basins produce about 1.8 million barrels of oil a day, over 27 million cubic meters of natural gas, and the biggest basin of all, the Santos Basin, which is the most famous of, of the two, uh, has an estimated 33 billion barrels of oil. Ooh, that's real money. It's real money, and Petrobras, the Brazilian oil company, just discovered more oil there, you know, in, on November 25th, so it's a, it's a very productive field. If you're Chevron, if you're Exxon, if you're Royal Dutch Shell, if you're BP, if you're any multinational oil company, you want to be deep water Rio and Sao Paulo. Well, that's the problem. This is very deep water, and while it's sweet crude, which is highly valuable, getting to it is, is going to be really difficult. Can they drill that far under the sea right now with the technology we have? Yeah, they sure can. Wow. They do it. Petrobras is the leader of it, but they definitely do it. Yeah, absolutely. Petrobras being uh, the Brazilian state oil company. Correct. Petrobras is really investing billions of dollars inventing new technology, coming up with new technologies to drill through rock and salt to get that oil. And they're doing it, and they're going gangbusters on it, and that's part of their growth plan. People in Brazil really hold Petrobras in high regards. I think it's something like uh, NASA during the space shot here. Yeah, those oil discoveries were equivalent of, you know, that's the Brazilian moon landing. If you did today's dollars compared to what we spent on the moon landing, it's almost equivalent to what Petrobras is spending on drilling and oil discoveries and technological innovation to pull that oil out of, out of the ocean. So when people in Brazil hear about the, the problems that Chevron has had these past few weeks, what's the sentiment there? It's very bad PR for Chevron, and Chevron knows it. They're already considered a bad neighbor in South America. Alternet, which is a alternative online news agency, they mostly cover issues related to the environment and social causes, and they just ranked Chevron the worst energy company in the world. The Brazilian government is not going to stand for a multinational company spilling oil in the Atlantic. I think it's tolerable at this point, only because no oil has washed up on the shores of Copacabana and Ipanema in time for the 2014 World Cup. So the long-term effects of this oil spill, do you think it'll put the, the brakes on the development of these three megafields? No, there's no chance of that. I think that Brazil wants to develop these oil fields. It's extremely important for Brazil because Brazil looks at itself in this light. They say, you know, Look what happened to Norway when they discovered oil in the North Sea. Look what happened to the technology that was developed out of Norway. Look what happened to the know-how and the engineering expertise that happened to that country. Look what happened with, to Texas, what became of Houston because of the oil discoveries in Texas in the 60s and 70s. We want that to happen in Rio de Janeiro, and the government is planning on that. And in order for that to happen, you have to have clean, perfect, as flawless as can be, oil drilling and natural gas drilling operations in those two basins. So it is extremely important for the government to get this right. Talking to us about Brazil's oil present and future is Ken Raposa. He writes about Brazilian business for Forbes Online. Well, Ken, thank you so very much. You're welcome, Bruce.
Time now to update some stories that recently aired on Living on Earth. You may recall our interview with environmental artist Christo. His latest project, Over the River, would suspend nearly six miles of shimmering fabric over the Arkansas River. Critics call it rags over the Arkansas. But Christo told us this, like his other artworks, is designed to disturb. They're totally irresponsible. All our projects, they're irrational, totally useless, (laughs) and the world can live without them. But they cannot be bought. Well, since we aired our story about Over the River, it's gotten through the federal regulatory woods. Christo's environmental impact statement was approved by the Bureau of Land Management. It'll go up August 2014. A few shows ago, we reported on the extensive use of antibiotics in animal feed. The FDA wouldn't talk to us while there were petitions by environmental groups wanting to stop the practice. Well, days after our report, the FDA denied the petitioner's request. The agency didn't challenge the need to reduce antibiotic use, but argues that the withdrawal process itself is too expensive. And money was also the issue when we spoke with Barbara Malera of Landreth Seed Company. The 227-year-old firm was on the brink of bankruptcy despite its deep roots in the nation's agricultural history. In 1798, it introduced America to the zinnia, one of its most beloved flowers. 1811, the white-fleshed potato. 1820, that was the first time that tomato seeds were sold commercially in this country. Malera tells us since our interview aired, listeners' response has been, quote, truly amazing. And sales of Landra's seeds and catalogs have bought the company time to renegotiate its debt. But a listener's response to our request for a cool fix for a hot planet got us in hot water. His suggestion, save energy by turning your refrigerator into an old-fashioned icebox, freezing water outside in winter and putting the ice on the top shelf of your fridge. Well, that got a lot of listeners hot under the collar. They wrote, that would just confuse the fridge's thermostat. So we put it to refrigerator repairman Ken Lynch. The theory is a good one. It's not going to be super efficient uh, in terms of keeping things cold. You'll create cold spots, but the refrigerators today, they rely on air circulation to really move the air to efficiently cool the entire unit. So... When you have no fan movement, basically all the cold air is just going to drop to the bottom of the compartment, be the freezer or the refrigerator. It's a good temporary fix, but aside from packing ice in it, there are definitely ways that you can reduce the energy consumption of the refrigerator. So what are some ways that I actually could cut down on my refrigerator's energy use? One of the best things is if you don't use the ice maker, the ice maker accounts for about... 15 to 20% of the refrigerator's energy consumption when the ice maker is running. Ah, so putting ice in your refrigerator is an inefficient thing, and actually making ice in your refrigerator is not an efficient thing. Yeah, I would use the old copper ice cube pop trays or even the plastic ones, just something that um, doesn't use energy to create ice. And Ken Lynch should know his company, Ken's Appliance Services, is in Arlington, Massachusetts, home to Spy Pond, where in the 1800s they used to cut blocks of ice out of the frozen pond, pack them in sawdust, and send them on clipper ships to customers as far away as India. Well, we're always as close as your keyboard. Check out our website, LOE.org, where you'll find a new survey about the show. Please take a few moments to fill it out and let us know what's hot and what leaves you cold. That's LOE.org. Coming up, how sweet it isn't. What's missing from most honey? Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. Gilman Ordway, for coverage of conservation and environmental change. And the Sierra Club, helping students, workers, entrepreneurs, and families create a healthy and prosperous clean energy future. Online at sierraclub.org slash livingonearth. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Professor Vaughn Bryant of Texas A&M University is a crime scene investigator. (music) 
When it comes to analyzing the not-so-sweet side of life, they don't get any nittier or grittier than Professor Bryant. He's the nation's premier Melissio palynologist. The web-based publication Food Safety News recently called upon the professor to investigate a sticky crime scene. Hello, Professor. Glad to be here. What's a Melissio palynologist? It's Melissio palynology. If you want to really literally translate it, Melissio refers to sweet. Palynology is a technical term for the study of pollen. Melissio palynology is somebody who looks at pollen in honey. So Food Safety News wanted to do a sting operation into the sale of honey in the United States, and they called upon you. That's true. Uh, they had been hearing that uh, a lot of the honey produced in the United States had the pollen removed. And, of course, once you take the pollen out, you don't know two things. The first thing you do not know is where the honey was produced. And the second thing you do not know is exactly what flowers the bees were utilizing in order to produce the honey. And the reason Food Safety News was concerned about this was because China has been, uh, for a number of years, guilty of dumping honey on the international market, and particularly in the United States. So kind of honey laundering. Yeah. <laughs> well, because there's a 250% tariff on Chinese honey, they've been sending it to other countries like Vietnam and Cambodia and Indonesia and Malaysia and India and places. And then those countries were um, then exporting it to the United States and claiming that it was domestic honey from those countries. And so the American uh, Beekeeping Federation and the National Honey Board and others have consistently requested the uh, federal government to uh, enforce some kind of a truth in labeling. But the federal government has been dragging their feet for years, and um, most other countries in the world have truth in labeling. You cannot export anything to the EU unless you certify where the honey comes from and what is in the honey, or they won't allow you to import it. So what does the USDA say about this? The USDA basically says that as long as you do not add other sugars or as long as you do not add extra water and as long as you take out any of the bee parts, meaning legs and wings and stuff, that you can sell it as honey. That's the only requirements. They have no other requirements. So if you take out the pollen from honey, what are you left with? Well, if you take the pollen out, the only thing you've got is sugar. So the, the pollen is really the only nutrient material in, in honey. I mean, the pollen does, in fact, contain amino acids. It contains starches. Uh, it also contains fats and vitamins and uh, various kinds of minerals. And a lot of people eat honey because of the nutritional value that they're getting from the pollen. Well, you found, and Food Safety News reports, that 100% of the honey that was purchased from CVS Pharmacy, Walgreens, Rite Aid, had no pollen and therefore really wasn't honey. Uh, ditto for McDonald's. I guess three-quarters of the honey purchased at Costco, Target, Sam's Club, Walmart didn't have any pollen either. Well, that's true. You know, quite frankly, what I tell people is caveat emptor, meaning let the buyer beware because most of what you buy in the store in terms of honey is not what the label says. One of the things that we discovered, not only can we not tell where the stuff comes from, but premium honey that's being sold uh, like uh, buckwheat or orange blossom or sage or thyme honey, and people are willing to pay premium prices for this uh, very exotic types of honey, we can't confirm that any of that stuff is actually coming from those plants because there's no pollen. I've been telling people for years the only way to really guarantee you're getting good honey is to buy it locally. In other words, buy it from the beekeeper or or buy local honey that is being sold in grocery stores and so forth, because all of this commercial stuff is honey. So, Professor Bryant, is there any way the average honey eater can taste test for the presence of pollen? I doubt that very seriously. And I do know that there are professional uh, honey tasters. Uh, you know, they say, oh, well, I can tell the difference between a sourwood and an orange blossom and stuff like that. But quite frankly, I don't know whether or not they could actually tell if the pollen was removed or not. I myself, I love honey. I eat all kinds of honey. But I'd be honest with you, I can't tell the difference whether there's pollen in it or not in most cases. But again, I'm not a professional honey taster. I am a honey tester. So, Professor, are there any crime scene honey investigations other than this one that you've cracked? Well, I tell you, you know, in addition to looking for uh, pollen and honey, I also uh, do kind of CSI work. I work with uh, law enforcement agencies looking for uh, pollen and trying to catch criminals. 
And a, a case that I worked on a couple of years ago was in Rochester, New York, where they had a teenage girl who was uh, murdered in uh, 1979, and it was a cold case. And uh, they reopened the case uh, just about a year ago, and I suggested that they send me the clothing. And after doing a thorough uh, pollen investigation of her clothing, I determined she probably came from San Diego, California, which, of course, shocked the people in Rochester. The last I heard, they were investigating missing um, teenagers in California back in 1979. Well, Professor, thank you for talking to us. My pleasure. Vaughn Bryant is director of the Pollenology Research Laboratory at Texas A&M University. Our voracious appetite for seafood vastly outstrips the world's supply. Globally, fish stocks are in steep decline. As a result, fish farming or aquaculture is booming. And so is a relatively new industry, aquaponics, growing fish and plants together in a closed symbiotic system. In Syracuse, New York, far from the ocean, a young scientist is experimenting with aquaponics, feeding fish with a, well, Let's let Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom tell you the story. She has the latest installment in our series, Go Fish, Striving for Sustainability. The State University of New York's College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse serves meals buffet style. They have a salad bar, pizza bar, um, you know, your stir-fry bar, taco bar. Michael Amadori is a graduate student here, majoring in ecological engineering. There's a huge array of different uh, samples of food to choose from. All those choices lead to a lot of leftovers. In 2009, the university composted 200,000 pounds of food waste. FDA regulations, a lot of this stuff, after it's been out, cannot be used again and again and again. So after being used for a day, anything that's left at the end of the day is trash. They get like a box of cucumbers, and two of the cucumbers have like soft or moldy spots. That whole box of cucumbers is now trash. Roughly 40% of all food produced in the United States is wasted. So Amadori came up with a thesis project to convert some of his university's waste into a valuable resource, fish food. The cafeteria usually closes around 8 p.m. So I'll go there right around 8.30. So what I'm getting a lot of times, like the leftover meat off the grill is still warm. You know, I've contemplated making myself a sandwich off of some of the stuff I find back there. He doesn't make himself a sandwich, but he does feed the meat to his fish. In general, he keeps an eye out for any foods they might like. This corn and bean uh, salsa right here, I mean, that's like gold right there. I mean, if I get some of that, I'll put all that in the food, the corn, the beans. All the food he collects, except dairy, goes into the grinder to make a mush the consistency of Play-Doh. Then he squeezes it through an extruder to make spaghetti-shaped strands that are baked, dried, and broken into bite-sized fish pellets. Amadori leads the way across campus to a small greenhouse where his thesis experiment is growing and eating. So in each fish tank there's 50 gallons of water and uh, about 19 tilapia fish. There are six tanks in total and above each tank is a 50 gallon drum cut in half and filled with gravel. That's where Amadori cultivates the other half of his experiment. Aquaponics is the combination of aquaculture and hydroponics. You raise fish, and in your standard like fish tank, like people have at home, but instead of using those commercial filters that clean the water, you pump the water up into a hydroponic grow bed, which cleans the water just like the commercial filters, but you also get value-added produce out of it. The fish deposit their waste in the water. That waste acts as a fertilizer for bib lettuce plants, and the water filters through the gravel to drip back to the fish. Tilapia are omnivorous. Amadori feeds the cafeteria diet to the fish in three tanks. Fish in the other three tanks get the industry standard corn-based fish food. I like to say that there are mainly three main ingredients, uh, ground corn, ground fish, and ground up Flintstone vitamins. So it's just a vitamin and mineral premix, and just corn-based feed and a lot of uh, fish. It's all that fish in aquaculture feed that worries Amadori. He says it's not sustainable. We've pretty much outfished all of the main commercial fishes in the ocean. So what we're doing now is we're harvesting their food, the smaller base fish that uh, you know is feed for the haddock, feed for the tuna, feed for the salmon. We're taking their feed and grinding it up just so we can grow fish in aquaculture settings. So it's not the most sustainable practice. 
Sustainable or not, fish love it. Amadora takes out a plastic container of food and shakes some into the tanks. The fish immediately come to the surface and gobble it up. You know, the commercial food has been formulated after the decades of research, so it is catered exactly to what the fish want to eat. They, they really like this. It's like they get to eat their favorite cereal every day. We're feeding them Fruit Loops, basically, here. Yep. Sweet, delicious cereal that they love. Emidori says the fish don't like the cafeteria leftovers as much. My concern about taking the food waste stream from a university is that that doesn't necessarily translate into something that is consumable by a fish. Sylvia Bernstein wrote the book Aquaponic Gardening, a step-by-step guide to raising vegetables and fish together. She says cafeteria tacos and stir-fry might not provide all the necessary nutrients. Fish need vitamin C. If fish don't get enough vitamin C, they get something called broken back syndrome. Another thing that can happen is there have been peer-reviewed studies that if you feed any sort of mammalian protein to a fish, that they get something called fatty liver disease, that can kill them as well. I've done analysis of the pellets, and they're comparable in terms of protein content, fat content, carbohydrate content, and mineral content to the commercial fish feed. So in terms of their basic nutrient requirements, they're being met. Aquaponics expert Sylvia Bernstein thinks it's a good idea to use food waste, but there could be an even better way. The alternative would be to take this waste stream and put it into a vermicompost or worm process where the worms are now breaking down the food waste. They will create vermicompost, which would be tremendous for the school grounds. And the worms are something that is excellent for the fish. Pelletized pizza or compost worms. Either way, the fish food is basically free. So even though the cafeteria-fed fish grow more slowly, Amadori says it still makes economic sense. Furthermore, the fish really aren't the most profitable part of the system. In, you know, one week I'm getting three heads of lettuce in that fish tank. Between the whole system, I'm getting 18 heads of lettuce a week. And that organic lettuce sum for $3 a head, that's what your real moneymaker is. And aquaponics is a very efficient system. It uses about one-tenth as much water as traditional farming, making it ideal for areas prone to drought much of Africa, the U.S. Southwest, or Australia. You can grow tomatoes, cucumbers, um, just about any other crop that you can grow in your garden outside of root vegetables you can grow in an aquaponic system. Emidori is eight months into a year-long project. When he's finished, some of his fish will be analyzed and compared to the commercially fed fish as a food source. But he'll still have a lot left over for dinner. When I'm done, we're going to be eating lots of uh, fish tacos, I guess. Um, for sure. I put in a year of hard work growing these fish in the system, and I tend to uh, eat them all and, and savor the flavor. For Amadori, this project is a possible way to kill two birds with one stone, reduce food waste, and grow sustainable food. Though he'll spend a year caring for his tilapia, they are anything but his pets. For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom. Animals often go to great lengths to attract the opposite sex, but one of our very finest feathered friends offers a unique perspective on the mating game, as Bird Notes' Mary McCann reports. It's early morning on the island of New Guinea. The lowland forest erupts with the crowing calls of male Ragiana birds of paradise. Groups of male Ragiana birds of paradise perform elaborate displays to attract females. The size of small crows, the males have a yellow head, bright green throat, and a lush mass of fine russet orange plumes that hang well beyond their tails. In a sequence known as the flower display, the males hang upside down with their wings flexed downward while flaunting those russet plumes upward. Birds of Paradise, an aptly exotic name for this most varied and extravagantly decorated group of birds. All 43 species are found on New Guinea, or nearby. 
Picture one named the ribbon-tailed Estropia as it flies along the forest edge. With an emerald green head and velvety black body, the Estropia trails two slender white tail plumes a full three feet behind its body. They undulate like fine ribbons in the breeze. That's Mary McCann of Bird Note. To see some photos of birds of paradise, flap over to our website, LOE.org. On the next Living on Earth, the redfish rocks off the southern coast of Oregon team with fish. But soon, they'll be off-limits to fishermen. It's really difficult, the thought of marine reserve to have your fishing grounds taken away. You know, and my first instinct was just to run and hide from it. Reservations over establishing a new marine reserve, next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Eileen Belinsky, Jessica Lise Kern, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, and Ike Shriskandaraja, with help from Sarah Calkins, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Susan. Our interns are Rafaela Benin and Jack Rodolico. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lurish-Dean composed our themes. You can find this anytime at LOE.org. And while you're online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. And don't forget to check out the Living on Earth Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And you can follow us on Twitter at Living on Earth. That's one word. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to just eat organic for a day. Details at justeatorganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at paxworld.com. Pax World, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.